0: I'm very pleased this morning to welcome Matt Wilkinson from the zoology department, which is just the one over the back there. Matt studied his PhD in pterodactyl flight, um, so flying dinosaurs, although I'm always told they're not actually dinosaurs. True. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then he did an MA in acting, so this should be quite a performance. (laughs) Uh, He's here uh, today to tell us about the zoology of things like dragons, unicorns, werewolves, and vampires, and why they don't happen in real life. Sorry if you thought they did. (laughs) Uh, So without too much more fuss, I'll give you Matt. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. (laughs) Thanks. Good morning, everyone, and happy St. Patrick's Day. Um, uh, Thank you so much for coming out on this balmy spring morning. Oh, the beast from the East strikes again, eh? Um, Okay, yes, so we evolutionary biologists now we're always being confronted by the the wonderful works of natural selection uh, these are a few favorites so you've got the 800 volt jolt that you'll get from an electric eel thanks to its modified muscles we've got things like this incredible termite mound with an internal air conditioning system um built by these tiny little blind termites we have The sinister embrace of the carnivorous sundew as it traps and sticks these flies and then slowly digests them. Uh, One of my personal favourites, because I'm a big spider fan. The spider's web, with seven different kinds of silk. um, All carefully adapted for various different uh, mechanical roles. But surely, this has to take the prize, really. (laughs) I mean, come on. I mean, it's sheer size. And the impenetrable scales mean that it's going to be pretty much invulnerable. Those vast wings mean it can traverse great distances with ease. And, of course, with that flamethrower breath, uh, it can dispatch pretty much anything without even having to come down to land. It is an evolutionary no-brainer. With just one little snag, of course... It doesn't exist, and as far as we can tell, uh, it never has. And before the chorus of complaints crack up, I am not counting things that people just wanted to call dragons. So things like this, very impressive, yes, the Komodo dragon, but it's basically an overgrown lizard. Um, We have this, so this is the leafy sea dragon, which is basically a seahorse which is mimicking a seaweed. And we've even got this, this is the um, pink dragon millipede. So, yeah, that's... True. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'm not counting any of that stuff. I'm talking about the the real thing, the fire-breathing, death-dealing reptilian horror, Um, the the, the beloved of um, fantasies everywhere. So um, today, and yet it is a really interesting question, why they don't exist, given that, no, if you look at their supposed adaptations, that should should be a really good thing. Um, And this isn't actually as silly a question as it might seem. You know, we evolutionary biologists are always at great pains to try to explain why the living world is as it is. But you can never completely do that unless you can also understand why the living world isn't how it isn't. Um, And so that's the sort of thing I'm going to be talking about uh, this morning. And not just about dragons, but I'm going to think about some other mythological creatures that you think might, you know, they, they seem like quite a good idea. Things like giants and centaurs and mermaids and unicorns. And, yeah, finishing up, hopefully, uh, with, a, with, a, with a denouement about why Dragonstone exists. But, first of all, part one, Giants, now. Oh, it's good to be big. It is good to be big. Um, I have here um, a carefully calibrated scale model of Tywin Lannister. Um, hopefully, not many of you know who that is. Well, <laughs> shouldn't be watching that. Um, And if I was that size, I would be in all sorts of trouble. I mean, a domestic cat would be a a, a terrifying prospect if I was the size of this little guy. Um, So the bigger you are, the more resistant you are to predators. The bigger you are, there's not very much that can kind of eat you the bigger you get. And also, you're a much better competitor. If the two of us were kind of going for hell for leather for a a, a meal or something, oh, no, fighting over a steak, sorry, mate, it's easy. The, the, The bigger thing tends to win out. So yeah, it's, it's a good thing to be big. And yet, so it, it's an interesting question. Why are we you know, why are we not bigger than we are? I mean, we already are actually pretty large uh, in the grand scheme of things. But what's stopping us from getting uh, even bigger? Um, excuse me a second. The trouble is that there's some interesting things start to happen um, as you get uh, larger and larger. And this is why I've got this, uh, this little cubic minion here. Uh, the SI units of volume is the, the one-cubic minion. Um, <laughs> so there is one. And let's say we want to just kind of double its size. Well, let's say we do it, double its length, double its height or something. Okay, well, I've got... Let's see if we can do that. There we go. Okay, well, now it's just tall. I haven't actually kind of actually doubled its size. So let's try and kind of double its size, but keep it looking... Keep it the same shape. Obviously, I'm going to need a few more here. So we got that, that, uh, that. And more there we go. So that now is double the size as it was before. So we've doubled every length. So it's twice as tall, it's twice as wide. But look what's happened to the other dimensions. Things like its area. Um, so the area of uh, no, the one cubic minion, that's kind of one square minion. Um, we've now increased the size of that face by four times. So that's now four Square minions, and if you look at the volume, well now we 've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight cubic minions, just by doubling the size. Now, this may well start, <coughs> excuse me, causing some problems for a living thing, that as you get bigger, um, your weight, your volume is going to increase faster than your area that's going to have some interesting consequences. so let's consider this for a second. so this if you can see that, is a uh, carefully calibrated, this might be a good time for the, uh, the camera. So this is a carefully calibrated mini-dumbbell, there we go, um, which I can support just with a human hair. Thank you very much, Will, for providing the human hair. <laughs> um, so that's all nice and fine. So what happens if we, if we increase the size of this thing? Well, I have here uh, a very exact 10 times replica of this. Um, So it's 10 times the length. Uh, All areas are therefore going to be 100 times what it was in there. So that's going to include the cross-sectional area of the hair. Um, And the weight is now 1,000 times greater. Um, So let's uh, see uh, what happens. Ah dear. (laughs) That is obviously... Actually, that wasn't supposed to break, but never mind. (laughs) Well... makes the point, doesn't it? Um, (laughs) The trouble there is the the, the weight of my little mini dumbbell was being supported quite easily by the cross-sectional area of that human hair. It's quite enough. Soon as you scale it up, because the weight is now increasing faster than the area, that support gets weaker and weaker and weaker until eventually it simply can't support the weight anymore and the whole thing breaks. And that is going to be a problem for any living thing as it starts to get bigger. Because, as I said, my weight, if I just kind of scale myself up, my weight would increase, again, if I was doubling, by eight times. Um, But the cross-sectional area of the bones that were supporting my weight would only be increasing by four times. Um, Upshot is that if you look at the skeleton of a big thing like that elephant there, you can instantly tell... Um, but it's had to do something about this problem its bones are robust. They are quite chunky compared to Something like a cat so it has to have these disproportionately thick bones Just to make sure that it can support its weight not ju- oh, oh, We'll take questions later. Sorry, um, but do remember it? Do remember remember we'll come back to it? Um, you might also notice that the posture is a little bit different so that cat's looking a little bit crouched whereas the elephant it's a it's a lot more upright Um, For two reasons. First of all, bones are long, thin things, and if you try to kind of bend them, they're more likely to break. So the heavier you are compared to the strength of your bones, the more straight you want your legs to be. Um, And it's also to do with the muscles. Now, if you're standing like this, uh, your muscles are having to kind of put in quite a lot of effort just to kind of keep yourself... Standing. And muscles are a little bit like bones in that it's the area, the cross-sectional area, that determines how strong they are. So bigger animals tend to be weaker for their weight than smaller animals, and therefore could not cope with such a crouched posture. Hence the more upright stance uh, of the elephant. Um, And this is why, and we often get very impressed when we see something like this. That's an ant um, that seems to be performing a super, well, I was gonna say superhuman, but no super ant time feet, um, no, carrying no, many more times its own weight, uh, and also sticking to the ceiling while it's doing it. It's not such a big deal for it. Small things are very strong uh, for their weight. Um, yes, yeah, so they, they, they kind of got that advantage. Um, all this means that, you know, that the biggest animal we find on land that well, we don't know this, but it's likely that the, about the biggest animal you could get is something like this. So this is a giant sauropod dinosaur. Uh, this is Argentinosaurus, because it's found in Argentina. Um, and yes, it says about 35 meters long, probably about roughly 75 tons. So, a fairly respectable size. Um, but obviously, with the, and because it's now quite a weak animal, because its bones are going to be relatively weak, there's a lot of stuff that it's not going to be able to do that smaller animals can. It would never be able to gallop, for instance, as uh, so it's going to be a fairly ponderous uh, creature. It's less of a problem for plants because they don't have to move around. Um, you know, they, they, they can just kind of build some tissue and just kind of sit there. I seem to remember reading once, although I may have dreamt this, um, that a tree would actually be able to get about 25 miles tall before it collapses under its own weight. As I say, I might have dreamt that. Um, it never gets anywhere near that tall um, because the major problem it has is just drawing water up to the top. Uh, that's the, the thing that, that's sort of constraining these things. Um, anyone know what the biggest organism of all is? The biggest thing on earth, yes. Oh, brilliant, the humongous fungus indeed, this thing. Uh, Armillaria ostoyae, which is uh, related to the honey fungus you get in Britain. Uh, and yes, there is a specimen of this. It's probably all effectively one individual that is two and a half miles across. Um, so, yeah, it is indeed in the, um, in the mountains of Oregon. Uh, there it is. That's, you, know, so you, you can't exactly see it from space, but no, it is an enormous creature. And, of course, it's very easy for it because it's being supported by the Earth. Um, the mass of this enormous creature, an well, enormous organism, it's all in the form of these tiny little threads. Um, so it doesn't have many of the problems of, of support and transport that other more complicated organisms have. Yeah, so that's the biggest organism on the planet. Um, Of course, we've also got things in the water. And what I just said about the the weight being taken by the earth, that should apply to things in the water as well. They shouldn't be quite so worried uh, about their weight as things living on land. And, of course, this is true. The blue whale is the largest animal uh, that's ever lived. Uh, Again, about 30 metres long, up to probably about 180 tonnes. So we don't get anything close to that on land. We're often very kind of impressed by this. Uh, about, it's enormous, huge. But is it that impressive when you compare it to something like a giant redwood or the, the humongous fungus? Um, why shouldn't it get even bigger than this? If it really is not suffering any trouble with weight support, what's to stop it getting you know, twice the size of this or 10 times or 100 times the size of this? Do <laughs> You need to write your questions down. I'm looking forward to answering them. Um, <clears throat> Um, In Norse legends, some of you may know, um, uh, one of Loki's children uh, is this gigantic uh, serpent creature called Jormungand, the Midgard serpent, which is so large that it encircles the entire world. What's to stop that happening? Um, Why aren't whales much, much bigger uh, than they are? Um, There have been a few thoughts about this. Uh, One of them is that to um, build a very gigantic creature, obviously you need an awful lot of food. Um, you need a very productive ecosystem to be able to kind of build that. Um, and this may explain why the largest whales go for krill, these tiny little shrimp-like things. Um, obviously, they are themselves very small, but you can, pl- you can uh, sort of mine them in vast numbers, reap them in vast numbers. Um, you just need a way of concentrating it. And that, of course, is what whales do. Now, unfortunately, you, you probably have seen video, you know, picture, um, uh, films of whales feeding before. I know Blue Planet and Planet Earth 2, I'm sure, had lots of it on it. Um, I couldn't afford the copyright um, to actually play you any of those clips. So I'm just going to try and replicate it for you. Um, Here we go. Is that going? Oops. Yes, there we go. Uh, Can we have the camera, please? There we go. So this is the ocean. (laughs) With the krill. And... Mm. And here comes the whale. Well. Oh, amazing. There it goes. Whoa. Oh, through the crowd. And then splush. Um Thank you. Um, thanks very much. Yeah, so um uh, that's how they do it. And what they do is they take in this enormous gulp of water, squeeze the water out of their baleen plates, and then catch the um, sh- <laughs> um, um And it's been thought that this will start to get a bit too difficult for very large uh, whales. That they, you know, they, it's Again, it's that, the same thing that large animals tend to be a bit too weak for their mass, so it's just too much of an effort to kind of scoop all that water up, and that might be limiting their size, and that's possible. It's also possible that there's something a little bit more subtle going on, um, that there is a flip side to the benefits of being big. Large creatures tend to to reproduce rather slowly. It takes us a long time to grow. Um, We tend to have rather long lifespans. It takes a long time to kind of reach the age at which we start reproducing, and then when we do, we don't usually have that many children. That makes us rather vulnerable to any kind of environmental catastrophe. Um, anything that might cause us to go extinct. Small creatures tend to bounce back from an extinction rather better than large creatures. Of course, this is why the dinosaurs went extinct at the end of the Cretaceous, but things like frogs uh, made it through. Um, So I'd like to just kind of do a little sort of test of this by running a little game called How Big Does Your Whale Go? There we go. (laughs) And for this, (laughs) um, I'm going to need some volunteers. I need five volunteers, please, um, let's have you, because you seem so keen anyway. Um, uh, you up there, thank you. Um, oh, I'm reluctant to go too deep into... Yes, you. Two more. Um, or oh, Yes, you just seem really desperate. And yes, you, that'll do. That's fine. So gather around, gather around, Come to the table, come to the table. Um, so we're about to play a dice game. Okay, so I'm just going to give you some dice. Um, good, we've got the camera on. So each of you... This, I ought to warn everyone, is, is m- m- quite a dark game, um, just so you know. So I'm going to give you a two black dice. These are the death dice. Kay. And two white dice. These are the life dice. Yeah. There you go. Um, so each of you get those. There you are. Uh, yeah, let's see. see so there you go. Um, Right. So you two are the reserves at the moment. Uh, the game is going to begin just with... Uh, the three of you guys, there you are, thank you very much. Um, and this is doing this. So if you just come to the side, maybe you're going to go one at a time. And the idea is that you're going to roll the dice. And the black dice, if you kind of lose the black die roll, you go extinct. If you win the white die roll, you speciate and therefore give rise uh, to another member of your lineage. Oh, yes, please um, be careful of the dice. Um, yes, yeah, so what we're going to see, and you're all whales. Yep, so each of you is a whale, a species of whale, and natural selection is getting to work. It's making you larger and larger and larger. Every round, you're going to get bigger. So every round, the the conditions for winning are going to change. So in round one, um, if you roll 11 or more on the black dice, you go extinct. If you roll 10 or more on the white dice, you give rise to uh, another species. And this, of course, is why we've got the reserves, just in case. Is that all clear? Okay, so let's play, How Big Does Your Whale Go? Right, of course, we want some exciting music, so um, so if you just come around to the side so we can all see, there we go. Excellent, so um, yes, you're gonna go first. Roll Roll those dice. Okay, well that's good news, you've survived but you've not speciated, so you get through to round two. Next. Oh, a bit closer, but still, you're all fine. There we go, and finally. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, I'm afraid you've gone extinct. But thank you very much. Big round of applause. Okay, time for reserve. Let's have the reserve in. Just one at the moment sir. Roll the dice. It's a brutal game, this. Who is yeah. Give it a go. Okay, you're fine. So that will do for now. Round one over. That was the pilot round. This is a pilot whale. (laughs) Um, Round two is the killer round. So now the, the conditions for winning are slightly different. So once again, you've got to roll 10 or more to speciate. But now if you roll 10 or more on the black dice, you go extinct. So again, come down to the side. We're so see. Lovely. Oh, off you go. You're clear. You're clear. Here on to round three. Next. Now. Oh, close, but you're still there. And then, oh, you've speciated. Very good. So we need another reserve congratulations come in so you come in at the killer whale round so that roll the dice is see we go oh good so you leave so good that's the end of the killer whale round now we're on to the minky round um so again things are still changing to remind myself what the numbers are so now if you roll a nine or more you go extinct Actually I'm going to take this over because I need to remember the numbers Nine or more, and you go extinct, and 11 or more to speciate. So, if you come around to the side, please. Take it away. We have speciated. Where was our. Res- sorry, I shouldn't have sent you away. You needed, you needed. Oh, sorry, no, what have I. S- I've done something terrible. No! Um, I'm really sorry. You've gone extinct. Uh, I forgot to see. It was so close. But, deuce downstairs, we might need you again. Um, you can also stay on stage, we may need you again, so that's good. Uh, make sure we can clear the camera so we can all see, that's good. Okay, you're clear, that's good. Next. You're ready. Oh, I'm sorry, you're extinct. To join the extinct folk, please. <laughs> oh, uh, there's more there. and finally. Okay, we're good. So I think we've only got two, You're the two that are still here, aren't Oh, it's getting close. So on to round four. This is the humpback round now. Okay, so with round four, if you roll seven or more, you go extinct and 11 or more to speciate. So go ahead. Oh, you've gone, I'm so sorry. And um, let's see what you can do. Okay, give it a go, give it a go. That's it, I am so sorry. Thank you everyone for playing the game, but no one, and if you leave your dice, please, thank you very much. Yes, yeah, so as you can see, that was enough. Just this simple increase in the risk of extinction and the lower probability of speciating, so yeah, seven rounds, i never going that far, um, means that that puts an effective limit on how big you can get. It could well be as simple as that. Anyway, part two, on to unicorns. Unicorns, oh, they're tricky, unicorns. Ooh. Why haven't we got unicorns? Um, Obviously, I'm not talking about that, (laughs) the unicorn of the sea, the novel, yeah, okay. Um, No, I'm talking about the proper, those are horse unicorns. And it's, it's a real, it's a particular problem, this, because, of course, a lot of quite close relatives of horses have horns or antlers or something on their head. That's a reindeer, of course. And then we've got this impala, lovely, sort of beautiful curved horn. And then we've got things like the rhino. The rhino is actually quite closely related to the horse. I mean, it's basically um, like a, a, a fat leather unicorn, rhino. <laughs> um, There were some extinct ones which looked even more unicornish. That's a thing called elasmotherium. Uh, which lived 29,000 years ago in Siberia. And yeah, that was another kind of rhino relative. But no horse has horns. Very interesting that. And there are all sorts of suggestions as to why that might be. Um, Some have suggested it's because horses have to run really fast and they kind of can go for very long distances and that any kind of horn on their head would just hold them up, which might be true. But then that should be true for a lot of these other antelope as well. So not sure I buy that. Um, It might have something to do with how these things are used. Um, so these, these kind of great ornaments on the heads of a lot of these creatures. Um, it's usually the boys that have them, and they tend to fight with them to get the girl. Um, so this is an example of two deer um, just having a go in someone's backyard, apparently. So that's what they're doing. So they're kind of clashing, um, using these, these, these horns as weapons, essentially. Now the thing is, uh, one of the reasons why they have to use these structures as weapons... It's because they don't really have much else by way of weaponry. Um, The group that antelope and cows and uh, camels and the like belong to, um, they don't have any upper incisors. They just kind of look like that. uh, Sheep are like this as well. Um, So if they're going to kind of fight each other, they need to have some kind of other option. Now, horses, of course, different story. These actually have some well-developed incisor teeth, and they've got a very strong bite. Uh, Sorry, a very strong bite at the front. So they can really give you uh, quite a nip if you've ever been unfortunate enough to be at the receiving end of of a horse bite. Nasty business. Um, So this is horses fighting. Um, And as you can see, they're just biting each other. Um, So it could... (laughs) So this might help to explain why no horse has ever developed any kind of horn. Um, it's because basically they've already got a weapon that they're using uh, to spar with each other. Just a suggestion. It's still pretty much a mystery why no horse has horns. Um, probably just as well, actually, given that. I mean, if a horse had a horn, it'd be a bloodbath. Um, uh, the only thing I'd ought to say is that, uh, obviously, unicorn horns are always depicted as being kind of helical, these lovely sort of spiral structures. That's very unlikely for something that's bolt in the middle. Now, narwhal tusks are spiraled but that's because they're not strictly in the middle of the body it's one of the incisors that's grown forwards so it's actually they have there is a left and right and every now and again as here you can get a narwhal with two tusks it's a rare thing we've got one in the museum so when the museum reopens which is very soon now um just about a week i think before the lower gallery opens have a look at our weird narwhal. okay that's it three centaurs um, centaurs. Oh, this would be nice, wouldn't it, to have horse legs. You'd be able to kind of go for a quick gallop of a morning. Um, it's, of course, a hybrid animal. A lot of our monsters are hybrids, uh, as you may well be aware. So there's the centaurs. We got griffins, of course, a cross between an eagle and a lion. Ah, oh, it sounds like a really good idea again. You know, you're taking the best bits of different creatures and just kind of mixing them up. What's so problematic about that? Well, as you may know, hybrids do sometimes form between species. So this is a, a horse and a donkey; they do sometimes produce offspring. Um, anyone know what they're called? Yeah, mules. Yeah, mule and hinnies. Yes, good. Depends on which way around it goes. Um, so yes, that's a mule, um, and it looks fine. Yeah, you know, pretty decent. It's sort of you know, sort of halfway between a horse and donkey, I guess. Um, but the trouble is, it is sterile. And this is the problem with um, hybrids. Um, And it all comes down to um, the way... Oh, and this is what I wanted to say. So sometimes you can get horse crosses with zebras as well. That's a zorse. Um, (laughs) You also get zonkeys and uh, zebroids. Um, Yeah, again, they're kind of... You can make them, but they're always sterile. And this comes down to the way that the instruction manuals of our bodies are packaged... Um, so this is a, a little, little picture of our DNA. The DNA is basically the recipe for you. It's um, in the, that kind of little chain of letters there. That's, that's the instructions for how um, our bodies are built. And the, these genes are all packaged into uh, sets of chromosomes. Um, so the, that's a set of human chromosomes. Uh, we have 46. And as you'll see, uh, they're all in pairs. So it's 23 pairs of chromosomes. So basically, we've got two copies Of almost all of our genes, with the uh, little exception of um, the sex chromosomes there. There's some interesting stuff going on there. Um, This is why it's, and I won't go into this in great detail, but why men are more likely to be colourblind. It's because we've only kind of got one copy of the the right genes there. But um, pretty much all of the other ones, we've got two copies of each. And that's one from mum and one from dad. Um, So they're all in pairs, and you know, that's fine. The trouble is, going back to our horse and donkey cross, is that they've got different numbers of chromosomes. And again, I've got a terrible memory for numbers. Um, So horses have 64, um, whereas donkeys only have 62. So the mule has 63. So there's an odd one. There's an odd one which doesn't kind of find a pair. Now, that in itself can be problematic. Um, Some of you may know about Down syndrome, uh, which is where there's an extra copy of chromosome number 21. Um, which can cause a few difficulties. Nothing stopping them living a full and active life these days. But, yeah, development doesn't proceed quite as it should do. But real problems if you come to reproduce. So this this is a very technical-looking slide, I'm sorry. Um, This is a very special sort of cell division that happens to produce um, egg cells and sperm cells. So what happens is that those pairs of chromosomes, they find each other. The pairs find each other. We're still not quite sure how. Um, And then some of the mum genes are swapped with some of the dad genes, and then the two separate, uh, and of course this is how we generate all the variation uh, in in our offspring, and then we produce the the eggs and the sperm, and that's fine. But you have to have your chromosomes in pairs for that to work properly. If you've got an extra one, well that's going to be like the, the wallflower at a nightclub. Um, It's not going to be able to kind of find any pair. So the cell division doesn't quite happen properly, and that's really going to make it problematic when it comes to reproduction. So this is why, well, part of the reason why these hybrids uh, tend to be sterile. And, of course, if you're sterile, you're an evolutionary dead end. That's it. Uh, If you can't believe children, you are dead to natural selection. Anyone know what that is? It's a liger. Very good. So liger is a cross between a lion and a tiger, as you might imagine. Specifically between a male lion and a female tiger. Um, Anyone know what the other way around is called? A A tigon, Good. Uh, Ligers are interesting. They are much, much bigger than tigon's, And actually considerably bigger than either lions or tigers. For interesting reasons, we do understand it. Can't go into it now, but um, actually they're too big. Really, they are not designed to be that big. And they have all sorts of problems as a result of this. But they're also sterile. Um, interesting, well, largely sterile. But these actually have the same number of chromosomes. So both lions and tigers have the same number of chromosomes. They've both got 38. So you might be wondering, well, what's the trouble? Well, I'm afraid it, the, the, the troubles go a little bit deeper than that. And I'm going to need another two volunteers. So someone who hasn't, yeah, why didn't you come up? You're very brave sitting near the front. <laughs> and... Oh, someone we've not seen yet. Yes, up there. Do come down, do come down. Hello, so you are? Villa. Hello, I'm Matt. Hello. Hi, I'll t- t- introduce myself to you. Um, so I've got two chromosomes here um, that spell out uh, an appropriate message. Hello, who are you? What's your name? My name's Sophia. Hello, Sophia. I'm Matt. Very nice to meet you. So can I just give you these chromosomes? To I say, a rather nice, appropriate um, Kind of message. So if you'd like to just kind of stand towards the front so everyone can see, there we go. So this is the kind of a, a bit of genetic information here, basically. So um, that's what the, the, the genes are spelling. Um, and first of all, let's say that you are both tigers. So these are both tiger chromosomes. I think it's quite appropriate. And let's see what happens when we do start doing that kind of you know, swapping that happens during this very special form of cell division. So we're going to swap some of the mum genes for some of the dad genes... And as you'll see, it's fine. I mean, okay, so the, the genes are going to be slightly different, but the basic message uh, is the same. So that's all fine. And now I'm going to do a little bit of rearrangement. Because the trouble is, as the as species start to diverge, as they start to kind of evolve, the genes start to change more and more. They might get a bit longer. They might get a bit shorter. And as we'll see, that itself can start to produce problems if they try to um, reproduce so now uh, let's say i don't know you're the tiger you're the lion let's see what happens if we try to now do the same thing and swap this uh, around there we go so we've got that this is going to just bear with me a second so we're going to do uh, And uh, that's so... So you might need to just give me a hand there. Could you just hold that there? Perfect. Brilliant. And let's just remove that. (laughs) Oh, dear. (laughs) So the meaning has now changed. (laughs) And the resulting organism is going to be now... A little, you know, it's just not going to work. Development's not going to work properly. This is you know, like the the oversize of the Liger. Things aren't quite working as they should. Thank you very much, you two. Give them a round of applause. <laughs> Beautiful. So, we're beginning to see the general problem here that the trouble is we are very complicated things. We are very complicated objects with very complicated instructions. And you can't just think about just. Messing those instructions around willy nilly and expecting everything to be fine. That's just not how it works. Life, in many ways, actually resists change because we are so complex. Um, muck about with stuff and things tend to go wrong. So we are unlikely, I'm afraid, to ever see a catmeleon or a crabadillo or a koala owl or a frig. Or an orang panda <laughs> Or a two-chameleon. Um, sadly. By the way, if you want to look at more, this is a fantastic website. So on the, on the Reddit um, website, if you look for the hybrid animals thread, they've got literally hundreds of these. It's absolutely wonderful. Um, and then, of course, the most ridiculous of all. Oh, no, no, the hippopotamus, of course. <laughs> and then, finally, um, this beevok. wait a minute, wait a minute, that, that's a platypus, that's a real thing. That's a real thing that kind of looks like a, a mash-up between two different sorts of animals. And I think this kind of gives us an interesting kind of um, alternative when making um, sort of hybrid-type forms. This is not a hybrid. This is not a hybrid between a duck and a beaver, obviously. Um, but different bits have evolved for different purposes. And, of course, this is what we're all like. You know, we're all many-celled creatures. This is the whole great thing about being many-celled, is that the different... (laughs) There's another question coming. Um, (laughs) Is that we can specialise different parts of ourselves for different jobs. Um, So is this another way to getting something like a a, a centaur? Well, yes, actually. Um, That basically is an insect form of a centaur. It's It's a praying mantis, of course. Walks on its back legs... Um, but grabs things uh, with the front pair of legs. Brilliant. So how come it can work for the insect, but it can't work for us? Well, it's fairly obvious. They have six legs, of course, and their ancestors had six legs. Um, so they kind of got a couple. You know, they've got extra legs to play with. Um, there's a redundancy um, to their uh, to their bodies, which means that there's a little bit more evolutionary flexibility there. Um, unfortunately, vertebrates um, only have four legs. And that does, yes, that's not a horse with eight legs or anything. That's two horses, one behind the other. Um, (laughs) This is not Sleipnir, um, Odin's eight-legged horse. Um, Four legs work really well for us. Four legs are a good, um, efficient number. We can do most forms of locomotion with our four legs. Most forms of locomotion with our four legs. I just assume I'm four-legged for a second. Um, We wouldn't want any more. An extra pair of legs, it's just another heavy set of things to swing around, and it's not really going to do us any extra good. Um, yeah, so we're unlikely to ever kind of get to that, even the kind of incipient stage of being, uh, or the starting stage of being, um, being a centaur. Um, so why do insects have six legs, then? Why haven't they gone to the say, well, Why aren't they restricted to four as well? Ooh, go ahead. That's such a bolt-up reaction. Oh, close. So arachnids have eight legs. That's actually really interesting. Eight legs is a very strange number of legs. Um, but yeah, so insects are in a separate group. They have the six legs. They actually need six legs. Um, you can walk just fine with four, as you can see here. Uh, I'm sorry for you. It might be a time for the camera. Um, well, I'll just no, keep going. Um, so you can walk. There we go. Hello. Oh, my heavens, my ball patch is getting really bad. <laughs> um, um, it's... <laughs> So it's, it's really easy to walk um, on four legs. I'm always going to be nice and stable uh, because of these three legs that are always going to be supporting me. It's a nice kind of sturdy tripod. But if you try to run with four legs, and of course a lot of vertebrates do, they go from a, a walk to a trot uh, to a gallop, um, things start to get a bit more tricky. You start to kind of lose that three-way support. You start to support yourself on two legs or maybe even no legs. You have this unsupported flight phase like when we're running. <laughs> like this, it's, um, insects would never be able to cope with this because they are so small, um, and so close to the ground, any kind of instability like this, even if it's only momentary, will cause them to fall over. So if an insect wants to run, um, as just happened with that answer, sorry, I'll just backtrack that and just show you again, here it goes. So this apparently is a slow motion video, but I'm not absolutely convinced. Um, That's how they do it. So they've got to move three legs at a time. And they can run like that, but they're always well supported. This, by the way, is also because they always have to kind of splay their legs to the side. You don't get anything sort of upright amongst the insects. So thanks to their small size and their need to hold on to those six legs, you can make a centaur out of an insect, but you can't do that um, out of um, a vertebrate. Now the bit that the dads are waiting for, the mermaids. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's not like you read in the papers. Um, Okay, right, so that's a more classic mermaid. I'm not going to spend very long on this, because, again, there's not an awful lot to be said that's not been said already. Clearly, the idea of a fish-human cross is impossible and doesn't really bear thinking about, but... Remember, is there another way? Is there a way we can kind of be, have a kind of foot in two realms? Um, Go back to the water, maybe even, and see what effect that will have. Well, that sounds quite possible, actually. Um, There are lots of things that have gone back to the water, like the manatee um, belonging to the Cyrenian group, and you therefore may know the similarity of words, Cyrenian, Siren, Mermaid. Apparently, and I'm not absolutely sure that I believe this, Um, this inspired the mermaid legend. (laughs) Those long nights at sea (laughs) do funny things to sailors. Anyway, so, um, yeah, so this uh, potential sort of mermaid archetype. Um, I don't think we're ever going to look like this. Um, We've lost our tail um, since we turned from monkeys into apes, so we're not really going to be able to kind of do anything like that. We might be able to do something a bit more like this. So a seal kind of effectively has a tail, but it's made, them, made it out of its, out of its hind legs. So maybe we could go down this direction. Actually, the, an awful lot of groups have gone back to the sea, and they all look quite different. So we've got penguins, of course, with their fabulous wings, now adapted for uh, swimming underwater, flying underwater. We've got the turtles. We've got the sea snakes that basically are doing the same thing they do on land. Um, we've got extinct ones, like these fantastic plesiosaurs, like the Loch Ness Monster. We have ichthyosaurs, the fabulously dolphin-like, and the very, very fish-like lizards um, of the age of the dinosaurs. So yeah, maybe we could go back to the water. Uh, maybe we could evolve into a... Again, let me make a note of that question. Uh, maybe we could evolve into a sort of slightly mermaid-like direction. Who knows? Difficult to predict that one. Um, my, I would imagine that... You know, in order to streamline ourselves and kind of get good um, aquatic appendages, um, that all of this nonsense might have to be changed. I imagine the hair would probably have to go, but who knows? Time will tell, I guess. Oh, yes, I forgot this last one. Uh, that's an ocean-going crocodile. Uh, one of my favorite groups, these, the Metriorhynchids, um, with that sort of fabulous uh, fish-like tail. Uh, amazing things. Um, the one thing that we won't ever be able to do is breathe water, I'm afraid. Um, water is such a hard thing to breathe compared to air, because uh, it's 800 times more dense. It is, there it goes. Um, it's 30 times less oxygen in it, and the gas is diffused 10,000 times slower. That means it's very easy, if you're a water breather, to kind of go for air breathing, just like that uh, mudskipper just did. But in, more or less impossible to go the other way around. We have become spoiled Um, by our easy access to oxygen. Um, There's nothing stopping someone breathing water to just take a little gulp of air and it'll be fine. If you did the same, don't do the same. Um, (laughs) If you stuck your head under the water and had a nice little breathe in, you would drown. Um, So there's really no prospect of us ever becoming water breathers again. All of those creatures I just showed you, they're all air breathers, Um, which is fine. You can be an air breather and live in the the sea, That's, that's no problem. Okay, so that's just before we kind of go into the denouement. So I know I haven't kind of touched on dragons just yet, but it's coming. Um, I hope you're kind of just seeing what we're doing here, looking at the way that living things have to work and the rules of evolution to try to explain why certain things do or don't exist. And I just wanted to kind of just quickly fire out a few other ones just to stimulate your imaginations. Why are there no wheeled animals? Um, why are there no mammals that look like snakes? You know, there are snake-like forms that have evolved many, many times in other groups. Never happened in mammals. That is weird. Um, what about metal animals? We make lots of use of metal. What's wrong with that? Um, plants that can walk around like animals. These are triffids. Oh, these are nightmare fuel when I was, uh, when I was growing up. Um, particularly interesting, given that we do have carnivorous plants, of course, as I've already said. That's a trumpet picture. Um, probably what the triffids are actually based on. Um... We also have animals that are behaving more like plants. So this is a sort of sea slug, which is grazing on seaweed, but then kind of keeping the photosynthetic machinery. They're keeping the chloroplasts so they can just bask in the light and make their food that way. Amazing thing to do. Anyway, so that's just a, kind of a few extra little kind of bonuses. Now we're on to the real thing, the, the dragons. Why are there no dragons? And I'm going to deal with the craziest thing first, the fire breathing. Oh, an amazing thing to be able to do. Doesn't really seem um, that likely. Um, But there is something that comes somewhat close. Anyone know what that is? It is a beetle, I will tell you that much. Oh, yeah. It's a bombardier beetle. That's wonderful. Well done, yes. Yes, so the bombardier beetle, and it does this. Yeah, so firing this very hot solution, and it fires it out of its bum, which is always fun. Um, there are a number of elements to this, and I just wanted to demonstrate one of them to you right now. So um, the kind of the, 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 um, uh, the business end, I guess, of this reaction is hydrogen peroxide, um, which, if you add the right catalysts, can um, behave quite explosively which is why I'm having to kind of put a bit of safety gear on here. Um, Don't try this at home, of course. Not that you would be able to, because you won't be able to get hold of the chemicals. Um, So here we go. One beaker. Very important safety goggles. There we go. Excuse me, Tywin. So this um, is some cask-strength hydrogen peroxide. Um, 30%, 30%, so quite nasty stuff, but don't worry. It's all going to go away quite soon. There we go. Da, 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 da. Just remember, this is basically the reaction that is happening in the bum of a bombardier beetle. And then, so this isn't the actual catalyst they use. They will use something a bit more um, subtle and biological. This is potassium permanganate. We just need a few crystals. There we go. Are we ready? Am I ready? One, two, three. There we go. So quite an impressive reaction. That, by the way, is just water vapor and oxygen. So it's now quite a sort of nice, friendly sort of reaction. So that is indeed what happens in the bottom of a bombardier beetle. Thank you very much. Um, Oh, thanks. (laughs) Put myself at terrible risk of chemical burns. Um, Okay, so that's, I think, pretty much the closest um, that any living creature comes to actually sort of breathing fire. Um, And again, it makes you wonder why. You know, we do produce flammable gases. That's not me. That's not me. Don't try that at home either. Um, Yeah, it's... um, (laughs) All we need to have is some kind of source of ignition, and we should be able to breathe fire, surely. Um, well, perhaps we could do it this way, with an electric spark. You know, we've, we've seen the electric eel, electric eel, 800 volts. You know, that the, the possibility might be there. Mm, sadly not. I'm afraid to do that in air takes between 10 and 15,000 volts. So, you no, know, the electric eel's 800 volts seems a little bit paltry now by comparison. We've also got this. Um, so, this is the kind of the, the, the tinderbox way of doing things just kind of um, throwing something hard at anything that contains iron, because then, as you might start to see, you get these little flecks of iron that comes off. And basically what happens is they rust really, really quickly, so quickly um, that it glows red hot, and that can can then be used to, to light a fire. And, you know, we have these compounds in us. It seems to be within the span of what life can do, and yet it doesn't happen. I think in this case it's because it's just too big a jump. The great thing about the bombardier beetle is that it can evolve this extraordinary reaction from stuff it already has at its disposal. Now, it probably was already using hydrogen peroxide as a, as a, in a weak form as some kind of deterrent. Doesn't take that much to kind of bump it up into something a little bit more vigorous. But there's simply no way of even starting down this road to fire breathing. So even though it, it kind of seems within life's capabilities, I don't think we're ever going to see it. Um, We've also got this particular problem, as I've sort of mentioned before, that we've got an extra pair of limbs here in a classic dragon. So you've got four legs and a pair of wings. I've already seen that that's going to be a bit problematic if you're a vertebrate. Oh, it's okay if you're an insect. Um, Insects, because they're so light, they can just grow these extensions of their exoskeleton, and they can flap away just fine. Vertebrates, that's a dragonfly, of course, appropriately. Um, There is actually something a little bit like this in vertebrates, and... Predictably enough, this is called Draco Volans, which means flying dragon. Um, And it builds a wing out of its ribs, which is a nice... So that's kind of an extra pair of wings. It's a little bit more dragon-like. Trouble with this is that I don't see these wings ever being strong enough to allow it to flap. It's okay as long as they're just holding it out, but it's too weak to flap. And there are other technical issues to do with how narrow the wing base has to be to flap, which I won't trouble you with. Um, Yeah, so it seems that... Uh, no, In the full version of the, the, this dragon, it, it's going to be kind of difficult to achieve. Although you'll notice that, I mean, modern fantasy artists are beginning to clock this difficulty with having the extra pair of wings. Um, so you'll notice that the wings have actually been built out of the forelimbs there. Uh, thank you, John Howe, great Tolkien artist. Um, final thing is the idea of this giant flying reptile. And here we have something. So this uh, is a couple of the largest ever pterodactyls, my favorite, of course. Aramborgiana and Quetzalcoatlus, uh, with Benedict Cumberbatch uh, for scale. Um, it is in the uh, right at the moment. A, a model of this thing is in the process of being unfurled. Um, there is long been a question over whether this thing could actually fly or not, but actually the consensus now is that it could. It may have weighed up to about a quarter of a ton, um, and this uh, is what it would have looked like if the. It's coming. Yeah. So that is a twelve meter wingspan. Sorry, it might brush your heads on the way down. You're privileged to do so. Yeah, so the largest ever flying organism. What a beauty. There we go. So that's quite so quite in all its glory. Thank you. And a quick Huge thanks to Matt, to Roxy, uh, to Tom and to Will up there for being my Quetzalcoatlus carriers. Thank you very much. Please bring her down. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't land so well. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) Cheers, guys. Okay, so a... Yes, yeah, so although dragons themselves may not exist now, something a bit like them, at least these giant reptilian flyers did once grace our skies, which of course raises one final question, will they ever return? And there I will leave you. Thank you very much. You've been a wonderful audience. Thank you. Right, time for some questions.
0: Yeah, we've got a few minutes for some questions. Okay. So if all of you... <laughs> we've got to have this. <laughs>
1: okay. Um, this actually seems quite heavy. I don't want to kind of talk it too much. There you go.
0: Um, well, um, I kind of thought in the dinosaur times, um, would megalodons exist?
1: A megalodon? Are we talking about the giant sharks? Yeah. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So there is a thing called megalodon... Um, the gigantic sharks, um, way bigger than the great white today. I forget exactly how old they are. Um, they, might, yeah, they might be post-Cretaceous, but yeah, they certainly did exist, uh, these gigantic sharks. Um, I still think they, they're not pushing beyond the blue whale size, though. Um, so that does still seem to be the limit as far as animals are concerned. Thank you. you. Keep
0: your hands up if you've got a question, because we've got a couple of mics, so we'll try and get them out. Is there another one in the middle somewhere? Down here? Okay. All <laughs> okay, right, time. she can use the box. Mm. Don't worry, she can use the box. Yeah, just speaking into that. Okay.
1: if right. you go up that side, there's one on in the back there.
0: Have we got another? Oh, there we go. go why couldn't? Oh, oh it's so <laughs> loud. <lovely. laughs>
1: <laughs> it does make your voice boom a bit, doesn't it? Go on. Yeah. What's the
0: question? I think the question is, why don't horses, horses
1: grow wings? Why don't horses grow wings? Oh, that's a good one. Um, My guess there, there are all sorts of possible reasons why this might be. First of all, again, they don't have the extra pair of limbs. The limbs are being very much used for for walking and running, so they don't really have the option of turning that into any wings. Uh, And also, I think they're probably just a bit too big. Um, It's interesting that when we see the evolution of flight, usually starts with something quite small, where it's kind of safe to experiment a bit, uh, because it's it's really got to start with them falling off somewhere. Um, And obviously, a horse falling out of a tree... It's going to get a bit messy, so yeah, it's not really the option of getting it started, but great question, thank you.
0: Over on that side there.
1: Ah, there, yeah, hello.
0: So for fire-breathing dragons, well often um, there are animals that are swallowing stones and you often produce the gases in the stomach, so couldn't it be that perhaps one day an animal might swallow the stones and then night the gases by accident?
1: Oh, that's a good question. So, yeah, just, just by stuff you eat. Oh, that's almost kind of fire technology there. It's like, yeah, and who knows? I'd, I'd be a bit, bit worried about lighting a fire inside my body. That's the only thing. Um, yeah, but a very interesting suggestion. I mean, there's a trouble maybe with having access to oxygen there, I guess. But, yeah, good thought.
0: Uh, over the other side. Oh.
1: Sorry, there you, there you go. Sorry. What's the difference between... A flying, a flying pterosaur and dinosaur. Ah, right, yes. So pterosaur. thank you, pterosaurs and dinosaurs are quite closely related, but they are different groups. Um, so th- and flying dinosaurs do exist. In fact, flying dinosaurs still exist uh, because birds are modified dinosaurs. So actually all this talk about dinosaurs going extinct at the end of the Cretaceous is something of an exaggeration. Uh, they are still very much uh, alive and kicking. But they are the flying dinosaurs. So pterosaurs didn't turn into birds. It's a a much earlier experiment with flight. Good one.
0: Up here at the back. Yep. Hi. So ancient peoples learnt to ride horses. Why did you never see anybody ride a zebra?
1: Oh, oh, great question. Thank you. Um, Yeah, there's um, all sorts of talk about why certain animals have been domesticated and certain other ones haven't. Um, I forget a lot of the details, but a lot of it has to do with the kind of existing uh, nature of the animal. So they kind of got to be social to begin with, it seems. They're reasonably non-aggressive. Yeah, there's a few tick boxes that are needed before you can sort of start uh, to become, you know, to think about domesticating an animal. Um, Another one is kind of, so Jared Diamond um, has, has thought a lot about this sort of thing, about how history would have been different had, say, rhinos been domesticable. Um, can you imagine? They'd be like the battle tanks. Um, and I think, you know, the history of human, uh, human history would be very, very different uh, if different species could be domesticated. Yeah, so thank you. So
0: just a couple more and then we'll finish. So over here. Right, right so... So one of the things you mentioned about size was basically it's dependent on the weight of the animal yep. or the organism. And basically as the as the uh, sort of you double dimensions the mass goes up or sort of three times or so or by a factor of 3 mm-hmm. with the research that, the research that's being done into super earths would you say it's possible or not if you were let's re, you know recreate the earth but with a lower level of gravity would it then be plausible to see things like giants?
1: Oh, yeah, that's a a brilliant question. Yeah, and of course, I think the idea of what life might be like on other planets really grows from this, this trying to kind of understand life as it is here. Um, It's difficult to answer that question, actually. Um, The the constraints would obviously be rather different. Um, I mean, it's been suggested that if you had um, a super-Earth and the gravity is much larger than here, then you'd get a lot more instances of animals that had to kind of walk more upright. Um, and I imagine that the, the upper limit of size would be somewhat lower. Um, who knows? Then, but, but there's also possibilities of mucking around with the materials. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult to predict. And I, of, I need to think a bit more <laughs> about that, one, to be honest. But thank you. Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, sorry, one thing I ought to say, just you know, being a flight person, I have thought a little bit more about this. Um, it's interesting that flight you'd think would be more difficult on a, a bigger planet. Um, it has been suggested that because the density of the air would be higher, um, that actually flight might even be easier uh, on a bigger planet. So that's kind of showing you some of the different factors you might have to take into account with that sort of reasoning. Yeah, Great one. Thank you.
0: I might throw on the end of that one. uh, Channel 4 did a documentary series about 12 years ago called Alien Worlds where they tried out a couple of different scenarios. Yeah. yeah. Last one is over here.
1: Lovely. Thank you.
0: Could you get a um, symbiotic pterosaur with bombardier beetles living in its mouth?
1: <laughs> 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 Who knows? <laughs> there are all sorts of fascinating symbioses. Oh, it would be it'd be like curry, wouldn't it? <laughs> um, and there's a great video uh, quite recently. It was um, a, a toad was filmed uh, eating a bombardier beetle, um, <laughs> and uh, it, it's amazing how long it kind of lasts. It's clearly in some discomfort. Um, as this thing is just continually just discharging into its into its stomach, and finally it vomits it up, and the bombardier kind of the beetle sort of limps off to live another day. Um, yeah, who knows? It's just sort <laughs> of stranger things have happened, I guess. <laughs> Thanks.
0: Okay, great. Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Matt.